All right. Well, good morning. We are in Malachi chapter 2, 17 to chapter 3, verse 15 this morning. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 to Malachi chapter 3, verse 15. If this is uh, your first time here, you are our guest. We've been in a, in a series this summer called Prophetic Words. We looked at the book of Habakkuk. Now we're looking at the, the book of uh, Malachi. Let me just say thanks to you for being here today. Thanks to all of you that have joined us online. Thanks to those of you that are uh, sitting in our overflow venue today to make space in this room for other people. Really grateful uh, for you. Uh, I want to tell you a, a story of change. Has anybody felt uh, like the world is changing exponentially fast? Right. I don't know if it's I'm getting older and just noticing more or if it's just uh, if it's just changing really fast, but I think it's, it's actually changing really fast. And uh, today's message speaks to that. The, 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 pri- the primary verse, like if I was just to choose one verse out of this section, it's Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, and it says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. So everything is changing around us, but, but he doesn't. It's a story I like to tell of a man who, an old man, who actually watched the years go by from, from his brownstone. You know what a brownstone is? Like a, like a two-story sort of, you know, we call them condominiums here in Houston, but in the Northeast, Philadelphia, those kind of places, older, it's a brownstone. So he was wheelchair-bound, and he worked uh, from home, and he rolled out in his middle age. He rolled out onto the stoop and, and watched the people go by, and as he watched the people go by, he would... He would wave down, and they would look up, and they would wave up, and they would, uh, he would say, what's the good news? And they would say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, and they would, they would look him in the eye, and they would talk to him for a minute, and they would keep walking. And pretty soon, as the years went by, people walked by, but they walked by kind of looking at their newspapers, and he would say, what's the good news? And they wouldn't look up anymore. They would just kind of wave at Mr. So-and-so and keep walking. And then a few years uh, later, phones came, iPhones. Anybody got an iPhone or who's an Android person? I'm s- it's weird, guys. It's weird. <clears throat> Just kidding. So uh, anyway, as he would roll out, he, he, he kept watching people and he would wave down. He, he, he became older and older and he would wave down and he would say, you know, what's the good news? And people wouldn't even look up at him anymore. They were just kind of buried in their phone and then walking to wherever they were uh, walking, but one day he got this young man's attention. What's the good news? And the young man looked up and was like, I, I really, I don't know. And so he vi- invites him up into the brownstone and they begin to talk. And he says, the young man asks the question back, what is the good news? And he holds up a tuning fork and he says this. This is middle C, right? So he does this whole thing. Tech hates me right now. But. The young man asks, you know, why middle C? And he says, middle C never changes. The whole world changes. Middle C never changes. Middle C is a, a constant. And the Lord God Almighty, above and beyond middle C, is the most consistent, constant, covenant, loving God. And he's the only thing that doesn't change. 
And that's what we want to look at uh, today. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We'll look at uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 to 315. If you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words, after the main text reading, just to uh, distinguish the word of God in my own words. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 jumps in here, and it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire And like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who Swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and there may be food in my house. And thereby put to me, me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. <clears throat> your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You can be seated. So that's a mouthful. I'll just remind you that This book of Malachi is an oracle, it's a prophecy from God to his covenant people, Israel, and it's given to them at a time where they are half-hearted. They are frustrated with God because he is not blessing them the way they think he should on the timetable they think that he should. And so they start bringing him less than they should, according to the scripture. Instead of the best of all the lands, the best of their flock, They bring him the leftovers, the last of all the lands, the worst of their flock. And this uh, is a problem for God in that they are not hearing him and obeying him. And so today I want to talk about the issue of 
the Lord does not change. And I'm going to just break this down into four observations, and we'll walk through these together. Number one is that the people are asking a question that we ask in our day all the time. Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? If you look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Uh, By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of them and delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, Judah is unable to recognize its own corruption. The people of God, they do not see their own corruption. They see the economic and social troubles as a sign of God's unfairness and his unfaithfulness to them, but they do not see their own corruption. And so they're asking, we get like this sixth, but you say, uh, statement here in the book of Malachi, uh, but it says in verse 17 again, but you say, how have we wearied you? And God says, really, really two ways. You say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. So you kind of have to do that. Remember, we're speaking to the priest. You kind of have to do that as a religious leader. If you're not following the commands of God, then you kind of have to say, it's okay for you not to follow the commands of God. And uh, in that sense, um, we're, all, we're all good. I don't feel like a hypocrite, right? And so he's saying to them, like, you, you say, Things that are bad, people that are doing bad, you say it's good, and that's not right. And the second way that you really, really uh, weary me is that you ask this question, like, where is the God of justice? But they don't see their corruption. So if they could see their corruption, they would understand uh, that they don't want justice (laughs) because it would come swiftly. Now, God responds by making four predictions about the future. Four predictions about the future, and I'll run through those uh, quickly. They're in Malachi chapter 3, 1 to 5. This is how he responds to the people who say, um, how have we wearied you? This is what's going to happen, says the Lord. First of all, I am sending my messenger. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. So one is coming who is a messenger who will prepare the way for me. This has been prophesied also by Isaiah and Isaiah in other places, but one place, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So there is this prophecy both in Malachi and Isaiah that is one is coming to the wilderness to proclaim the way of the Lord. Now, all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'll read Matthew here, but all the gospel writers, all four of them, interpret John the Baptist as this messenger, the one who fulfilled this Malachi and Isaiah prophecy. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 says, For this is he who has spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So in the time of Malachi, God says, I'm going to send one who is going to prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. John shows up in the first century, the beginning of the first century, and his calling in the wilderness is to prepare the way of the Lord. And he points to Jesus when Jesus shows up and says, uh, this is the one whose sandals I am uh, unworthy to to, to untie. Uh, He's far greater than me. 
Uh, he, he, he prepares the way of the Lord. And so all the gospel writers uh, view uh, John as the, the, the prophetic fulfillment of this Malachi prophecy. Now, why would they think that? Well, two reasons. One, by observation. They saw him show up. They went to the wilderness where John was, and they heard him proclaiming the way of the Lord. And secondarily, they walked with Jesus, and they must have talked about this. They must have talked about the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah and Malachi, and Jesus must have said it was John. In fact, we see in the scripture, Jesus says, there's none greater than than John because he's fulfilling this, this scripture. So four predictions for the future to the people in the time of Malachi. He says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he does it. Secondly, it says, suddenly the Lord you seek will come to his temple. This is in chapter 3, verse 1, second part of verse 1 and, and 2. Someday, as the, the one who comes that prepares the way of the Lord... The Lord, when he does that and he points out the Lord, the Lord will come to his temple. And the question that follows is, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure the day of his coming? Now, this begins to indicate that the one who is to come, the Messiah who is to come, is not just a savior, but a purifier. And we see this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. It says that he will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will come like a fuller's soap. So part of his job is, is going to be to purify the sons of Levi, that priestly tribe. And they will now, as he comes, they will begin to present righteous offerings again. Righteousness before the Lord. In other words, the response is, I'm sending my messenger. He will suddenly show up. He will come to his temple, and he will be a refiner of you. And the change in your life that will occur is you will go from not listening to me and doing things that are evil as a priestly tribe to becoming uh, presenters of offerings that are righteous. And then verse 5, this is probably the most daunting of the four predictions. Verse 5, he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. He says there will be swift witness against all kinds of people, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, oppressors of hired workers. I'm always like interested. Oppressors of hired workers, oppressors of the widow and the fatherless. Those who neglect hospitality to sojourners, people who don't fear me. I'm always, I'm always interested that the Lord in many places puts sorcerers, idolaters, and liars on the same plane as people who oppress hired workers, oppress uh, the widows and the fatherless. The, the oppressors are just those who don't take care of in the, the community of faith. Uh, those who neglect hospitality to, to, to sojourners. He's going to draw near for judgment. That is daunting because he says, this is going to happen. It will happen to you and and I will refine you and I will draw near to you for judgment. There is nothing, we may have lost sight of it, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ and in the place that we live, but there is nothing more daunting than the judgment of God. There is nothing more daunting than being on the other side of the justice of God. It is why we need Jesus, because if we stood on the other side of the justice of God, we would be consumed ourselves, because there is 
Not one righteous, not even one according to the scriptures, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is a daunting thing. It's a daunting thing for the priests. It's a daunting thing for the people. It's a daunting thing for us as we think about it. But the good news is it goes on to say, but because I do not change and I keep my end of the covenant, unlike you, you are not consumed. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, this is our our key text, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, I will keep my promise to you. I will keep my covenant to you. I will come and I will bring justice, but you will not be consumed because I made covenant with you. You will live on because I made covenant with you. He's a promise keeper. I, the Lord, do not change. A good way to translate this verse is because I, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, have not, cha- uh, have not changed. You, the sons of Jacob, have not perished. Because I, the covenant God, have not changed. You, the sons of Jacob, have not perished. And let me say this uh, to all of you who have trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of your sins. How many of you trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of your sins and then sinned again? Anyone? I mean, yeah. Me too. Me too. Hebrews chapter 3, verse, uh, chapters 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's the same God. I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. Can we trust God to keep his promises to us? In short, yes. How do we know? Because he made promises to Israel in the past and his keeping of such promises in spite of the rebellion shows us as much. He, he promises to send a messenger, and then he does, John the Baptist. We know that occurred historically. He promises to send a Messiah, his son, his only son, the one he loves, to die on a cross to save us from our sins because we could not save ourselves, and he did that. He promised to raise the crucified Messiah from the dead on the third day, and he did that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you think he didn't know that I would trust him one day and sin again the next? So many people under this false illusion that somehow if you sin after you receive Christ, that you can lose your salvation. And if it were up to you and to our human logic, that would be true. Because we didn't keep our end of the covenant. We didn't keep our end of the bargain. But the reality is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. He died for you knowing that you would receive him and sin again and need to repent again and receive grace again over and over in your life. And what I'm telling you is that you can trust the promise of God to save you for eternity as you believe in Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth you are, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved, saved from the wrath of God, saved to an eternity, and you're saved not because you do good things or never do bad things, but because I, the Lord, do not change. And that is really good news. 
That is really good news. There are none of you with ears that are hearing this teaching or seeing it online or sitting in the overflow venue or watch it one day on, on some, some video. There, there are none of you that are beyond the reach of the love of Christ that holds you securely. It says in the scripture that he seals you with his Holy Spirit. That is his action, his seal, his promise, and he always keeps his promise. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The, the gospel right there in Malachi is saying to the people he made covenant to, like, I don't consume you because I make covenant with you. And he's the same today, and he made covenant to all who believe through his son, Jesus. That's where he cut covenant with all of you. Who, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from your salvation. So what is the proper response to ancient prophetic texts like this that says, like, you weary me because you're asking for justice, and if I gave it to you, you'd be consumed, but because I keep my end of the bargain, I bring judgment, but I don't consume you. What is the proper response to understanding, like, we should be consumed, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ that we are promised in eternity that we don't deserve, but God wants to give us because we trust his son? What's the proper response? Malachi chapter seven, sorry, Malachi chapter three, verses seven to 13 sort of gives us an answer uh, to that. It says, verse seven, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. you, You keep... You know what my word says, but you keep doing what you want to do and not what I tell you to do. You keep choosing what's right in your own eyes versus what's right in the eyes of the the Lord. So he says this, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? That's the next but you say statement, number, number seven, I believe. He says this. Will a man rob God? Again, we're going back to those flocks, those, that land. You're supposed to bring the first. You're supposed to bring the best. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? There's number, number eight. No, that's actually number seven. How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So what is the proper response? Well, the proper response in understanding these words is to return to God in all of our ways. Returning is is, is the New Testament word repentance. It's the same concept. It's this idea that you're walking in a direction, perhaps away from God, and you turn and you go back to him intentionally. That's, that's your work. You're hearing his word, and you choose not to look at him and hear what he says and keep walking your own way, but you return to him. And that is the call to the priest. That is the call to the, call to the people, and that is the call to you and to me Today, the only proper response to God's word and his righteous judgment is to return to him. And it's interesting, he gives this clear promise that when you return to me, I will be there, I will receive you, and you will find blessing. Test me on it. 
That's what he says. James, in James chapter four, verse eight, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, it's the same concept on this side of the cross. Like sometimes we walk in our own way. Have you ever done what is right in your own eyes versus what's right in the eyes of the Lord? Yeah, yes. And so when you come to that and you receive conviction, then we return to him. We come back to him kind of like the prodigal son. And we find this father that is like, hey, put the ring on his finger, put the clothes on his back, the robe on his back, give him new shoes, kill the the calf because uh, my son is home. He's a good father. He does not change. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so they say in this text, how shall we return? How should we return? There are so many things God could have pointed to. So many different things, issues God, God could have just laser focused on and said like, return to me on this, this particular way. But he, he, he points out, he chooses to focus on the issue of withholding tithes. I was asking myself this question, was that because God needed money or grain? How many of you think God needed money? None. I hope none of you think God, God needs money. Is it because he needed grain? He didn't, he didn't need grain himself. It wasn't a selfish request, a selfish act. The problem was Israel's attitude toward and the use of their possessions is a huge indication of the health of their relationship with God. Did you know there is a, a direct line to our stuff and our relationship with God? What we have and our relationship with God. What we don't have and wish we had in our relationship with God. There's a direct line to, to possessions. And that particular day, they're asking, how are we robbing God? And what they do is they disconnect the gift from the giver. So if you read all of the Old Testament, what you'll find is that constantly from uh, Leviticus all the way to, to, to Joshua, there is this phrase over and over again that, that is repeated, the Lord was giving them the land. He was giving them the land. He had promised it to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. This covenant piece was like, you're gonna get this land with boundaries from, from Dan to Beersheba. We're gonna tribe it up. You're each gonna have your own place, houses you didn't build, vines you didn't plant. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, dates everywhere. There's seven species, pomegranates, olives, vines, all these things that you're gonna have that you haven't had out in the wilderness. And when they get there, it's all yours because I'm giving it to you because I made covenant to, to, to you. And so when Joshua brings them in and they actually show up and they have all this thing, they bless God to begin with, but then they begin to go through these cycles of taking that gift for granted. The land becomes like not what God gave them, but look what we did The Bible makes it clear that this land, this blessing to them is actually a, a gift of stewardship, that God owns the land flowing with milk and honey, 
and all that comes with it, including everything his people have in the land flowing with milk and honey, including the first of all your flock, the first of your flock, and the first fruits of all of your grain and your economy, your pomegranates, your vineyards, your olives, all of that. He, he, he owns all of it. And they're saying, how are we robbing God? They're giving him the last, the, the worst, instead of the first and the best. When you think of like tithing, you probably think of that concept as giving 10% of your income through a local church as worship to God. It's a good model. It's a great model from the Old Testament. In Malachi, it's more than that. The tithe is a tenth of everything you own, not just not just your gold or silver, but a tenth of your land, of your produce, of your income, uh, of your household. Uh, even in the law, you're giving your firstborn back to the Lord. I mean, everything is his. He owns it all. And it's all an act of uh, worship. Every third year, the tithe was designed or to be dispersed in a person's hometown consumed by local landless inhabitants, people like Levites, foreign residents, uh, orphans and fatherless people, widows, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, 28 to 29, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, 12. You can go study that there. But every third year, that tithe was to to be dispersed. So I I would take my tithe that year, a tenth of everything. I would have to take it to my hometown and give it to people who needed it. So it's not just that you're robbing God when you're not bringing what he says bring, but you're also not caring for the poor. You're you're not caring for the fatherless, not caring for the widow. You're becoming the oppressor of the sojourner, of the widow, of the fatherless that we talked earlier is just as bad as a sorcerer and an adulterer and a liar. But they don't see it. They just are like, I don't, we don't see our, our corruption. We're just thinking God is not, where's your justice, oh God? Um, most of you don't have lambs or olives or vineyards. But Second Corinthians chapter 9, 6, and 7, it really gives us a good, a good word about what our possessions and how we worship God with them. It says this, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give. Listen to this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, like, oh, I got to bring this. And not under compulsion. Like Pastor Brian said, I better bring this. For God loves a cheerful giver. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. It's still about the heart. It's about the heart in Malachi, and it's about the heart in 2 Corinthians. Like, don't bring your your gift, your offering, your tithe under compulsion. It's not like God needs money or grain. And... uh, Don't bring it reluctantly either. Instead, bring it in worship as a cheerful giver. Bring it to the storehouse, right? So in that day, they're storing up grain for all those people who need it. It is for God to bless the people, 
Do you know the same thing happens here? When you bring your cheerful gifts, your heart of worship, do you know that you are blessing so many people here in the Northeast, the Middle East? Just the blessing of your church experience is part of that, but you give almost $400,000 away a year to missions on top of common needs. You give a lot. People who come in the door who couldn't pay their electric bill for whatever reason, who couldn't afford to go to counseling for whatever reason, who needed groceries this week for whatever reason, you do that. And it's because you come with a cheerful uh, gift, and that's the model in the New Testament. So today, when God calls us to repentance, to return to him, uh, he, he, he does not leave out our possessions. He does not leave out our possessions because our heart somehow in some weird human way is very connected to our possessions. And he doesn't want half our heart. He wants our whole heart. So let's ask ourselves a few diagnostic questions. Just listen to these questions. How does the use of my possessions and money indicate the health of my relationship with God? How does the use of my possessions and money indicate the health of my relationship with God? Two, am I worshiping God with tithes and offerings centered in joy and thankfulness, knowing everything I have comes from him? And three, are you withholding in that sense that like in Malachi, you're disobedient? And it's not only disobedience to God, but it's taking away from people who are in need. Are you withholding in that way? I don't know the answers to those questions for you, but you do. God makes this promise to Israel, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house and thereby put, my, put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven, for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That's his part of the covenant. That's his promise uh, to the people. And uh, I, can, I can tell you this, like my own story, <clears throat> when uh, we, I left Baylor University and moved to Combine, Texas to work as a part-time youth minister, uh, I made in 1996... $17,000 that year. And uh, I felt like I didn't have anything to give to the Lord. Um, but we gave what, what we could because we wanted to. And uh, we had a house. <laughs> it was the only house to, that we could afford to rent and the roof caved in. And we would go on dates and buy one ice cream cone and you have a lick, I have a lick, you have a lick, I have a lick. I mean, it was just hard financially back then. Um, and I look back on that all this time, and I think, you know, I'm, I've never been a rich man. I didn't get into this to become a rich man. But God has always given me everything that I need. I feel really blessed, you know? And um, he's faithful. I can just tell you that. I've heard people use this passage of Scripture in a, in a wrong way to say, if you, will, if you will give this amount of money, he will multiply it. I, I don't know what he'll do in your life. I have no idea. 
I just know we have a God who doesn't change, and he calls us to give us his whole heart, our, give him our whole heart, and part of that is possessions, understanding that it all came from him, and he takes care of his kids. I know that. Sometimes that's humbling to be on the other side of that, but he does, right? So I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I, the Lord, do not change. Let's ask the Lord to speak to you. So God, would you help us to live out that Deuteronomy 6 principle that, that says you call, when you call us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I pray, God, would you um, just take it, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, everything we have comes from you. We know that. God, make us a people who approach you and worship with everything we are. Yes, our song. Yes, our prayer. But also our possession, our work, our neighboring, our service. God, would you just take all of us, every part of who we are, and use it for your glory and for the good of people. Father, I know that you've spoken to people today in ways that they need to hear encouraged them, maybe convicted some of them. You've spoken things in. God, I pray that they would take those things to heart. And that it would change the direction of their feet. So God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.